Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. In these extraordinary times, we're coming to you from our various homes as we all shelter in place. This season on SageCast, we're talking to Pomona faculty and alumni about the personal, professional, and intellectual journeys that have brought them to where they are today. Today, we're talking with anthropology professor Joanne Newcomb. An interdisciplinary scholar and filmmaker, she is the author of the book, Everyday Sectarianism in Urban Lebanon, Infrastructures, Public Services, and Power. Welcome, Joanne. Um, Thank you. Thanks for, well, thanks for joining us here in cyberspace. (laughs) Um, I mean, we're we're getting close to a year now in in this pandemic lockdown, and uh, I'm curious to know whether your perspective as an anthropologist gives you any insights into what's happening to us all, what's happening to the social fabric around us and around the world. Well, yeah, it's a, it's it's the million dollar question, right? Um, I think that what's happening has been uh, profoundly um, world changing in many ways. Um, just so much of what we do um, and just everyday life has moved into this um, virtual realm um, of course, not for everyone, um, but there's a way in which I think a lot of people who were not necessarily using digital and virtual platforms before the pandemic have been kind of forced to figure out how to maintain, you know, learning, um, teaching, social relationships, um, all kinds of things that used to be done face to face are now increasingly being done or have to be done uh, virtually. And um, this also has, I think, you know, sort of two takeaways that I have at least now um, are, is the need to sort of examine and look at, you know, what sorts of socialities um, are now possible virtually for more people and what that has sort of meant in, in various different, you know, dimensions of what, what it makes more accessible and, and in some ways what it makes less accessible. Um, and then the other part of it, which is something I've done a little bit of writing on, is how um, the pandemic has really laid bare um, many of the inequalities and exacerbated many of the inequalities that have are, that already existed um, in our systems and infrastructures here in the United States, um, specifically around you know who sort of gets to be safe, basically, and and which communities have been really ravaged by. Um, the virus um, and, you know, the ways in which the term essential worker has been used to um, really, you know, not not shield a lot of the um, working class folks who um, have continued to have to work in person, um, have not really had access to any kind of relief when they've lost their jobs, um, are living in Um, situations and in some cases in LA County really densely populated um, neighborhoods and even multi-generational houses that leave them more um, you know precarious um, and more susceptible to to getting infected and to having it spread to vulnerable people Um, and I think um, to me it's really laid bare the ways in which um, so many people have been really underserved and um, not served at all really by our public healthcare infrastructures, by our um, lack of really protection, basic kinds of protection for workers. Um, And now this stalled relief 
um, which, you know, in many other countries of comparable size and, you know, uh, of comparable wealth, let's say, um, have been able to provide relief to their population in, in the form of repeating, um, you know, monthly payments. And we just have not seen that kind of response um, in our system. And it's, it's incredibly worrying. Um, and, and we've already seen sort of the devastation of it. And what, what I hope is that even, you know, I hope that the vaccine rollout gets more efficient. Um, I hope that we will sort of learn from you know, some of the, and it, we'll learn from the, uh, you know, terrible outcomes of the pandemic over the past year, the ways in which our system was really already inadequate um, and just was so fragile that it couldn't withstand, you know, the pressure of this pandemic um, and how unevenly the consequences of it were really borne out um, by different people. Um, there are so many dimensions um, to explore of what has, what has been happening over the last year, but one of the most recent that's been interesting to me is the way in which um, intellectual property regimes um, around, you know, uh, medical innovations like this vaccine are really part of the reason why we can't ramp up production um, because it is owned. You know, this is intellectual property and it's not, you know, an open source, open licensed thing that everyone could just make. And instead, we have a system which is looking at different companies to develop different vaccines to compete against each other. Um, whereas what would actually be more efficient um, to get more vaccine into people's arms is to ramp everyone to use that energy and those resources to just ramp up production. Um, so you see again and again, various ways in which the way things are set up, like literally our, our, our infrastructures of knowledge, of public health, of, um, work and labor um, of housing, right? All of these systems are, are not really able to withstand um, what the pandemic has brought upon them. And it's, it's to me, it's kind of laying bare um, what has already been really an insufficient um, system for delivering the most resources, the most care, um, the best of what there is to people or distributing any of that fairly. Um, and it's something that I think most people could kind of acknowledge was already there, but at this point it's totally undeniable. Um, and, and I think we're gonna be seeing the consequences of this for some time to come. And I'm, I'm mostly speaking about the United States when I make these comments. There's, you know, my, my work in Lebanon, there's been a whole other set of things happening there, um, but really, in this moment of a global pandemic where the development of vaccines is really what everyone's focusing on now, I, I find it really um, kind of sad that um, we can't really focus our energy on ramping up production of one particular vaccine because of the way that um, medicine and the development of medicines is part of a market system which requires this sort of competition um, with privately owned um, companies and their own intellectual property. So yeah, these are just some of the things I'm thinking of. I mean, it's really endless. As an anthropologist, um, every aspect of everyday life is really open for question um, and, and can be the start of a, of a huge research project.
Um, and I encourage my students actually really to look for the ways in which um, the everydayness of how life has been transformed during COVID-19 um, pandemic is the beginning of a great research question, um, whether it be socialization, how socialization happens, how um, maybe more people are taking walks as I saw in, in Los Angeles and not driving as much, which is interesting. Um, how teaching has been transformed, at least for the time being, um, the ways in which um, people can or can't see family members and how that's, their relationships are mediated through these virtual platforms. All of this is really interesting. And I encourage my students to think about um, you know, exploring uh, how to approach these questions ethnographically through these virtual platforms because they're not just a reflection of something that already exists, they actually are transforming how people relate to each other, I think. Um, so that maybe that's a kind of a long answer to a complicated question that probably has a million other things that <laughs> I could sure. say, but those are just but, some I mean, things I'm thinking of. Yeah, the pandemic is like this huge anthropological experiment, right? Global experiment that, um, <laughs> that is is producing amazingly um, I mean shocking results in some cases um, surprising results of all kinds and we're all participants of their we're all participants we're all guinea pigs <laughs> <laughs> yep Joanne, it's fascinating to, to hear the anthropological lens of the issues that, that we're that we're going yeah. through. I, want, I wanted to take you back a little bit on the beginnings of your interest in anthropology. Was there a, a particular event or person? Um, how did that? How did you get started into anthropology? Well, um, what I realize now, looking back, is that what I was always interested in. Um, I actually started out as a film major at uh, New York University, um, and I'm a filmmaker too. Um, but I realized what I was really drawn to before even studying film was kind of the way that um, noticing and paying attention and regarding um, everyday life through, through a lens that is maybe trying to break through the usual habits and ways of seeing, right? Um, is, is just a mode of relation, is just a way of being in the world that I really appreciate. Um, and so what I mean by that is, you know, what I consider to be an anthropological way of approaching um, a question or, or coming up with a research question, like I sort of alluded to before, is to look at something that is naturalized, is mundane, is considered um, just so everyday as to almost not be noticed. And then to ask something about why is this thing actually naturalized, mundane, considered normal or normalized? And, and what are the histories that actually produce that? And how do people relate to each other around this thing? And does everyone actually believe this or are there outliers in this situation? Um, and I, I just, I think it's a discipline. It's also a kind of sensibility and I, I found that my interest in film was usually more towards nonfiction filmmaking of a kind where um, the camera was part of a process of relating to and with and collaborating with others to think, to, to kind of shed new light on, on what everyday life can tell us about larger systems in the world or, or longer histories, right? Um, 
So I didn't really have a vocabulary for talking about what this interest was until um, I actually later decided to get a master's degree at, at UCLA in a program that was called Islamic Studies, but I was really less interested in religious studies and more interested in area studies. And I knew I wanted to kind of do research in um, the Middle East and specifically in Lebanon. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I discovered there in this interdisciplinary program is how I was really gravitating towards the anthropology side of things. Um, so I, one of my advisors there was an anthropologist, Susan Slimovich, and I just realized in talking to her and engaging with ethnography that what I was already kind of interested in and the questions that I had, they really were anthropological questions. Um, and the, the method itself of ethnography, um, you know, of course, ethnography, those who, the, for those who aren't familiar, it's um, interviews, it's participant observation, which means you spend a lot of time in a place, um, hanging out with people, um, doing things and participating, not just standing outside and watching things unfold. And it's a, it's a really important part of how you learn um, about a life world. And I realized that all of that is part of what I wanted to do with the documentary uh, or nonfiction kinds of films I wanted to make. Um, and that has a whole history in documentary film as well. Um, but I was just really intrigued with what anthropology could open up in terms of um, how you could turn this everyday um, act of really being attentive and noticing and listening um, into a kind of research question that could, um, you know, lead to a a sort of generalizable knowledge. So it's lifting up or it's kind of starting with that unit of everydayness that for me was what drew me into um, thinking about anthropology as a field I really wanted to go deeper into. And, and it's also why I love teaching it so much because it's, it's a set of tools that you always have with you because, you know, as an ethnographer, you are the um, locus of every ethnography, right? You are the sensing body that is um, being in space, talking to people, noticing things, smelling smells, hearing sounds, and thinking about all of that and how um, that space of everyday life tells us something about life in a particular time, tells us something about inequality in a particular time, about assumptions um, about the world in a particular time, ways of resources being divided unevenly or not. Um, Those are just some ways that, and you know, those are some ways that ethnography can help us get to those bigger questions through a really grounded everyday approach um, or a grounded approach in everyday life. And um, to me, that's just what's so, really wonderful about it and and why I think it's fun to teach um, because even if I'm not necessarily training future anthropologists what students can really learn is you know how very important that that sensibility that way of listening that way of noticing can really be um, to to kind of getting a better sense of what's going on right in the world and and when you were talking about the the pandemic, you um, mentioned something that I know has has been a um, part of your research, and that's critical infrastructures and um, the and you use the term post grid imaginaries in your work. Can you unpack that concept for us? It's a little dense for most readers, probably as it stands. 
um, and how that relates to some of the work you've done in Lebanon here in the U.S. Yes. So um, post-grid imaginaries is a concept I'm developing now, um, but it really comes out of research I've done in Lebanon and also looking at, you know, the situation. It was became really clear to me, especially in the early stages of the pandemic, but still today, that the kind of um, mid-20th century imaginary of um, a kind of grid system, even if we're literally talking about electricity, but also thinking about the provision of public goods. Um, and of course, these universal systems were never truly accessible by everyone. They never really lived up to their promise of access um, for all or even or equal access for all, obviously. Um, and so they're worthy of that critique. But but what I'm uh, what I'm trying to tap into is that there was a kind of um, there was a there was a, an imaginary animating uh, a particular kind of mid-century framework um, that seemed achievable at a certain point that you could build public things that everyone would have access to and that they would create a kind of um, way for society to orient orient themselves around vis-a-vis -vis these things. Um, there's a great scholar um, named Bonnie Honig who elaborates this concept of public things um, really beautifully, um, that they're not fraught, that they're not not fraught, right? They're not innocent objects, but what they do is they allow people to have something to negotiate over, to negotiate around, to you know, to create a sense of sort of connection and belonging to in a way. And this is something that I wrote about in my um, first book on Lebanon, I was really interested in how when those infrastructures and systems are fragmented, including things like social welfare provision, but also just basic utilities like electricity, then, you know, the systems that step in to provide those things are part of the way that people understand themselves as part of these different publics. And in Lebanon, that's expressed through um, sectarian political organizations who often run clinics, who often provide social welfare of various kinds. And so part of what starts to happen is, um, well, then you kind of belong to it, you know, these various publics and that that has a lot to do with how people identify or imagine themselves, that it, it also is about relating to these things and not just about religious belief or even spirituality, even though those things could also be happening at the same time, they don't necessarily have to be. So where I'm going with this now and what I've really been interested in is thinking about this moment of um, kind of the rollback of the state. And this is something that's happened globally. It's happened in structural through structural adjustment in places like Egypt. Um, but it's also happened through austerity measures um, and cuts to public spending in places in Western Europe and the United States and elsewhere where the state kind of wants to roll back. Um, from providing these public goods. Um, maybe wants to privatize bits of them. Maybe wants to, like in the UK to about 20 years ago, start charging tuition um, for public universities. You know, this kind of like erosion of the idea of taxes pay for it and then you just have it, right? Um, and of course that was never achieved and I don't want to, I definitely don't want to romanticize the past. Um, but just to talk about how a particular kind of political imaginary around um, the provision of resources becomes at a certain point unimaginable. Um, so today, 
um, when thinking about creating a robust, you know, public framework for providing something, it feels politically impossible. And so why? Why is that? Um, that's something that I'm really interested in. Um, and of course, you know, the piece I wrote recently, which was about, um, you know, the post-grid imaginary in the pandemic to kind of flesh this out a little more, it was written um, kind of towards the beginning of the pandemic last year. And I read this letter that a physician wrote, um, who was a physician director of a hospital, I think, I can't remember exactly, I've, I've cited it in the essay, about how difficult it was to procure PPE. Um, and this was, he, he was just appalled at how um, basically the federal government told states to just kind of acquire it themselves, did not um, ramp up domestic production, um, also did not create a streamlined um, you know, supply chain for importing them as one single buyer, as the federal government, right? Basically told states to kind of get it themselves. And it was at the point, it, it got to the point where even this individual hospital had to procure, secure and um, create its own individual supply chain from China to, to import PPE, because that's where most of the PPE was actually being manufactured. And there was this global um, you know, just rush on buying stuff from these suppliers in China. Um, so we know that the post-grid here, what it basically did was it, it created all this unnecessary competition and cross-bidding where states were ramping up um, how much they had to spend on importing this stuff. And it created a situation where there were shortages. Um, and, and so it was interesting to me to see Again, why do we have so, so much overlap and so many different actors doing the same thing? And it's not, um, once you get past the idea that these are just rational decisions being made, um, then you have to think about, well, what are the political imaginaries? What are the kind of ways of seeing and the just so ways of understanding the world? It can be no other way that have kind of created this box around what seems possible right now. Um, and I'm really fascinated in that because, you know, there we were up against a terrible crisis. And even then it wasn't enough, right? To break through and to say there, you know, that this should be centrally controlled. Like there, there's, this should be centrally planned. Um, there's a real aversion to that, which is, has a very interesting history in the US context and globally is connected and, and importantly, and the reason why you know, the example of Lebanon matters, the example of Julia Eliashar's work in Egypt matters on structural adjustment, because this is not um, a, a new phenomenon. This is in coordination with something that's really been happening globally, which is, which is about structural adjustment, which is about um, basically shifting from public to private provision of infrastructures. And we can't see it as an anomaly if we're really to understand the broader history of what where it comes from, and also what it could lead to. Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of those central um, infrastructures that um, we depend on, as you were saying, you know, are things we don't even see, we don't, we don't think of, think about, we are hardly even aware that they exist. I, and to, But the the pandemic has really highlighted a lot of them, the health infrastructure, PPEs, um, the, the infrastructure of how our, our food is produced and distributed to us. And, um, you know, we've had shortages for the first time that Americans can ever remember, you know, what, 
have what is the infrastructure behind the production of toilet paper you know mm-hmm. <laughs> and um i wonder is is do you think there's a greater awareness of that now um, that and that that can be beneficial long term? I mean, what should we be doing uh, in that regard? You know, it's it's a really good question, and I'm I'm curious to see where it goes um, because I I always put a lot of hope in awareness, right? That if people kind of see something break down, then they'll sort of understand that it was maybe a little bit um, not the best way of setting things up to begin with, um, and and maybe not necessarily for the toilet paper, but for the PPE and other things, the public health system, you know, that their awareness will bring about something. But I'm starting to think that actually, um, and, and there's a lot of great people who think about this and write about this too, um, that it's awareness, but it's also organizing, right? It's also experiential. So yes, people have experienced some shortages, but the ways in which this pandemic has really um, been born so unevenly between different people of different classes, between um, people of color and specifically African-Americans and Latinos in LA, um, the kind of broad discrepancies between the way that this pandemic has been born um, is really disturbing and worrisome and also punches a little hole in that belief of mine that awareness is enough, right? Because um, the experiences of people living through this pandemic um, have been so disparate, right? Um, and the real unevenness of, of suffering and death um, and just utter devastation are on a scale, that inequality is on a scale that I think is, is hard to understate. So I think along with awareness needs to come, uh, a, you know, new forms of solidarity, um, different ways of thinking about organizing with each other around um, issues that, you know, ultimately, um, you know, better account for our entangled fates. Um, because really, you can't have a pandemic raging and, you know, in a population and not pay attention to those inequalities. Like, it just kind of doesn't work in the end. Um, but I fear that the the unevenness and how this has been born um, is not an automatic guarantee that awareness is enough, right? Um, it's going to take a lot of organizing and work and just real solidarity um, to see us through to some change. Um, and and I'll be, you know, I don't, I definitely don't have any really clear idea of of what what it will take and and how to get there. Um, but I think joining with others, um, you know joining with organizations, joining with others to collaborate um, on on issues related to, you know, labor, on issues related to education, on issues related to public access to public health. Um, that's really where it's going to be. And and I, I think the kind of the attitude of educating oneself and becoming more aware is great, but it's it's um you know there's still a gap in action that that I'm not quite sure how to get to, right? Um, but one way is to join an organization. And and I'll just say, you know, to give one 
very local example, Gente Organizada in, in Pomona is a wonderful organization that does really, um, is as grassroots as you can get. It's totally community-led. It's totally youth-led and parent-led um, and looks really broadly at everything going on in the community and organizes around it, around access to mental health, around um, education, around um, you know access to uh, quality um, quality activities in school around most recently, you know, uh, participatory budgeting at City Hall, right, um, where they actually ask for transparency and how money is being allocated to different programs. And this was all led by, you know, young people, high school students, young adults. Um, it's just a fantastic organization. So I think directing people to places and organizations and sites and groups that are kind of already out there doing the hard work and um, finding some way to, to be at least in the local inflection of this broader struggle um, is, is one way to go about it. Um, but of course, you know, to me, the toilet paper story is super interesting because like you said, it's, it's a very um, experiential example of, of realizing for the first time that this is a big system and the way that it works um, is not set up for, um, it, it's, it's run on a very thin margin and it's not set up for there to be a run on it, whether it's PPE, whether it's toilet paper, whether it's anything, right? There was a sanitizer shortage. Um, so we have to think about like, what are the, and there's a great scholar at UCLA, Miriam Posner, who writes about this and there are others um, too, but you know, what are the ways in which this kind of just in time uh, global infrastructure supply chain you know, run by companies like Amazon, but of course, that's that's one that's their model. But increasingly, everything is run this way. Um, is is leaving us on these like thin thin margins where nothing is warehoused anymore, where we're constantly bringing things from overseas and selling them just enough, um, and how carbon intensive that is, and how actually, um, you know, unsustainable it is whenever you have a situation that disrupts things like a pandemic, right? <laughs> Um, so it, it, it makes us really examine how that transnational supply chain is the big story. And there's tons of other scholars that I'm, that I could cite here on this, but I, I think that's a very important issue moving forward. Yeah. When newspapers are covering the supply of toilet paper and, and it makes the, you know, top headline in the New York times when, um, Massachusetts buys a bunch of, of you know, um, PPE directly from China. I mean, I, you, the supply chains just never make the news, but now suddenly they do. Yes, and it's a big, it's a big year for infrastructure. Yeah. <laughs> jo Joanne, in studying infrastructure like you do, your work must sometimes cross over and cross over into the political arena. How do you navigate that as a scholar? Well, it's interesting because in 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 Lebanon, um, that my field site was mostly one one municipality, one city. There were a few others where I did interviews too. Um, but I actually found everybody to be very um, forthcoming. Um, it was actually maybe because of what I was looking at was was a kind of hyper local instantiation of what I saw as a broader pattern in the country. Um, but I found everybody to be really friendly, really open about it, uh, really willing to talk about it. 
Um, and part of that was the, you know, it was an ethnographer, an ethnography is always shaped by um, the relationship between the researcher and the community and the, the field site, so to speak. So um, I'm Lebanese American. I had roots in this community where I was studying. I had family connections there. Um, and there's a way in which um, my ability to speak Armenian, which was the commonly spoken language there, um, and also Arabic, um, really helped me um, sort of, you know, and also I personally really related to people there, right? Because I, you know, have family connections there and I knew some of the people there. So um, there was a way in which that, um, that relationship was very helpful in navigating some of this. Um, but there's also the, the broader um, issue in Lebanon, which is that everyone is constantly talking about how broken the infrastructure is um, in relation and blaming the state, right? There's a famous mm -hmm. saying, and this is, starts the beginning of my book, in Arabic, it means where is the state? And you hear people saying it all the time when the electricity cuts, when there's really bad traffic, when there was that garbage pileup a few years ago, which led to the major demonstrations. So that saying is so everyday that it's almost, it's not really a dangerous question to, to start talking to people about how broken and fragmented the infrastructure is. Um, so I found that, you know, it, it wasn't controversial in that sense at all. Um, now I'm moving into a whole new, you know, arena of work um, that's connected to the old, the, the first project I was working on, you know, in relation to infrastructure, but I'm, going to be focusing on electricity in California and specifically um, the kind of future of the transition to renewable energy. And, you know, I'm at the very beginning of this project, but um, I imagine that, you know, anytime you're talking about electricity and anytime you're talking about infrastructure, you are talking about politics. Um, but I also find that because it gives you something to orient around that is very material, um, that is very everyday, um, that is very also essential and important and undergirds um, so much of what, what everyday life, the expectations of everyday life in the 21st century in California, they're all about having a 24-hour electricity supply, right? Um, so we're at a moment here in the state where we're having these constant, you know, rolling blackouts um, because of the fire risk and because of the you know, the riskiness of having this infrastructure as it is, and that's a whole other long story. Um, but it's it's become an available topic, again, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, and once it becomes an available topic, I find that even though it's, um, it's always political and, you know, everything is political, um, it becomes much more available to talk about and a lot in a way less tricky to navigate because it's on everyone's mind because they're kind of actively dealing with it in its everyday way. And, and so it makes it a timely, a good time to do a project like that. Um, interested in talking a little more about your work in Lebanon and its relation to the work you're doing now. Um, the, uh, in this country, Americans are incredibly resistant to learning anything from another country. <laughs> you know, we, um, you can point out where we really stand in healthcare in the world and people just shrug it off because, you know, we have the best healthcare system in the world. Of course, we're America. And, um, I'm, but I'm, I'm curious about, um, 
what lessons you learn in Lebanon that are applicable to what we do here? Well, I think that the moment of real astonishment and surprise for me that made me feel like this, um, talking about these in relation to each other, these sites in relation to each other makes a lot of sense, was when I was watching a streaming service, you know, I was watching something and, you know, I have a Los Angeles, Southern California based IP address. So the ad that's targeted to, to me is different than the one that's going to be targeted to someone in, I don't know, New York. And I kept seeing this ad for this home backup battery system that was this sleek kind of device. And, you know, it looked almost like the Echo, the Amazon Echo. It looked like this kind of mm. black cylinder. And the, the, ad was kind of showing you how your life will be uninterrupted if you just have this thing um, because then you could charge it and then you could use your refrigerator still or you could keep the lights on and they showed people just having a blackout and having it not matter because they have this thing and I really I did a double take and I thought this is so interesting because I, you wouldn't have even seen this ad two years ago I've been mm -hmm. living you know I grew up in Los Angeles area um, in Southern California and I I've lived here for now since coming back to this area for uh, almost five years. And it just, it's just unimaginable to me to think that a home individual battery system would be necessary in California in the year 2021. So yeah. it, it seemed to me um, this became an everyday life thing in Lebanon a while ago and that people have to use these shared generator systems where they pay someone to be able to plug in because the national grid doesn't supply power 24 hours a day to say the least at you know farther away from beirut it, it provides very little actually um and so i became interested in what what happens when people have to find these individual workarounds and what happens when it feels like state abandonment actually of that promise that implicit promise that there's a grid and it works 24 hours a day and you are connected to it and you pay for it yes but you expect it will just work and that expectation is being eroded right um and it's being presented not as the dusty infrastructure of um you know a diesel generator that's going because your state grid just doesn't work it's being presented as this kind of slick opt-out, right? So it's a convergence of this different cultural idea that you know you think about the California ideologies around um, opting out and in rugged individualism, quote unquote. I'm putting these all in quotes because they're just stereotypes. They're ideas, right? Um, and combine that with okay, the grid is PG&E, it just had to pay a huge fine because they were found to be responsible for the fires a few years ago. They're failing in, you know, their, their, their infrastructure that's in need of upgrade. Um, and, and then you have the solution being this, this high-tech, slick-looking, cool thing you can buy to further opt out. That's an interesting moment. That's a big shift. And it creeps in in a way that feels almost imperceptible, I think. Um, but it's not going to be soon. And, and I, I think that we ought to pause at this moment and think, what does it mean when the responsibility shifts to the individual to provide their electricity, even if it's just in these moments where there's temporary cuts? That, that feels 
you know, and of course there are parts of the country where that happens during snowstorms and stuff. But I mean, for it to, to be advertised to me in that moment on the streaming service as someone living in Southern California, that's, that's something different. And, and, and yet it's not unique in the world. So why don't we think about the logics that undergird um, a system breakdown and, and how that shift occurs to the individual or the individual unit of the home to now shoulder this responsibility of their own energy needs. Um, and that, that can be extremely um, worrisome and, and, and really doesn't bode well for a future when we want to think about um, how that opt-out could really affect and exacerbate existing inequalities even more, right? When, because mm -hmm. the whole point of the public things, as Bonnie Honig argues, is that everyone, everyone ideally, at least this is the imaginary, this is the hope or the promise implicit in it, is that everyone gets to plug in. And when that's no longer a promise, when that promise is starting to get eroded, that's a problem. And that's what I mean by the post-grid imaginary. It's fascinating to hear because I grew up in South America and blackouts were just like, oh, there it goes. But then I came here, I'm like, people are like, oh my goodness, my food's gonna spoil. Yes, exactly. Yeah, same in Lebanon. Everyone there is like, we could deal with a blackout for a while like they just they have the skills and they also have yeah. backup generators right like when new york right. had the the hurricane people were really in dire straits because um they just didn't there was no way in these and a lot of buildings acquired backup generators after that some of the really big ones um and i know a few individual situations around that but you know, people were stuck, elevators weren't working, that the water pump to push the water up to the high floors wasn't working. So this is the kind of thing that can happen for, you know, when you don't expect that a blackout is is just part of the of normal life. Your, your cities are actually far more vulnerable in that way, um, less resilient um, than, than people in Beirut would be who actually have some know-how and are set up around it. Mm -hmm. um, but I think I didn't want to, I'm always careful to say that it's, I appreciate their resilience and their real resourcefulness in Beirut. Um, but I worry when, you know, that, that push to make sure everyone's individual home is resilient starts becoming the norm. That's a big problem. Um, and so I, I shy from, I, I'm impressed by how resourceful my Lebanese family and friends are, but I shy from, um, being romanticizing it, I guess, because I don't think they should have to be that resourceful. It takes a lot of energy out of their lives. And, and you know, I, I don't wish that on them or on anyone. Um, but, but I see that, you know, the real difference between what happens during the blackout, I mean, it's just a thing. It's, it's obvious. Joanne, you also um, have written about, speaking of still in Lebanon, about the huge explosion was it october 2020 can you tell us a little bit about that how did that impact um was is it near where you do your work can you tell us a little bit about that yes so that explosion was massive it was um, in the port and it was quite near where i used to live when i was living there and near where i did field work as well um, and near where some friends and family live and i mean the impact of the explosion can't be underestimated. It was massive. I still actually can hardly believe the force of it um, when I 
saw the damage afterwards and I saw videos of the explosion um, and how people who were living, you know, quite a distance away from the port still had their windows blown out and felt the force of the explosion. Um, it, it just was utterly devastating, utterly devastating. And so such a terrible, awful time in Lebanon right now. Um, and since the explosion, such a difficult time from everything I've heard from friends and family, um, because there's the explosion, there's also the financial crisis, there's also COVID-19, there's a pandemic. Um, and it's just made a difficult situation just even more unmanageable and devastating. Um, so it's, it's hard to be, um, you know, people are going through a lot there. I know that there's wonderful people um, doing amazing work on the ground, um, thinking about the city and its recovery. And, um, you know, I myself, I did a, a independent study with a couple of students last semester where we were looking at um, the impact, not just the impact of the explosion, but also the real um, local resources and, and the potentials for economic recovery um, in Burj Hamoud, which was the neighborhood where I did a lot of my research for my book, um, which also happens to be uh, in, you know, a real artisanal cluster um, where every aspect of a, of a supply chain, so to speak, or a manufacturing chain for jewelry, for shoes, and for clothing and other items can be found in that neighborhood. So um, jewelry making is really complicated. There's certain people whose their main expertise is, is setting a diamond. There's other people who have other kinds of expertise. And then there's also shops where they sell this stuff. And so the, the effort of our independent study was to talk to, you, you know, working with collaborators um, in Lebanon who live in Bershamud or who work there. You know, one of them was a jewelry maker himself. Um, a few others were residents, people that I met doing research that we kind of worked with remotely, um, along with a kind of MA student in architecture who's done amazing work around this, um, Sarina Gopian. So we together with them kind of talked about what, what real assets there are in the community and how um, devastating it will be for any one of these sectors to disappear because people live and work and this is the economy of the neighborhood. And unlike um, a lot of places in Lebanon, as I discovered, that kind of artisanal or manufacturing sector um, has really not received a lot of support or attention. Um, most of the investment has been in, you know, tourism, which didn't work out, didn't really ever come back. Um, after the war or in financial services, which are now in just total tailspin. Um, so the possibility or the potential of, of supporting these really family owned businesses um, is, was something that you know, we wanted to cultivate and uh, produce a study about. So that's something that we collected some interviews and some um, data from people on the ground there. Um, and we worked with this architecture student um, at AUB to kind of bring it to, um, you know, to create some, to create a spotlight really on, on what wonderful assets there were in that community. Um, so this is just one small area of study that, you know, this is one community out of so many others that were impacted by the blast in, in direct and indirect ways. Um, but I think 
understanding the blast in the larger context of the other problems going on is important because it was almost like, you know, the most spectacular thing that happened last year and totally devastating, but the, the other problems happening in the country just made everything so much worse. So it was just compounding. So on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap this up. Um, we've been talking with anthropologist and filmmaker Joanne Nuchel. Uh, thanks, Joanne. This, thanks for joining us. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you. It was great to talk to you. And to all who've stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Stay safe and until next time.